Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see y'all here today. My name is Justin, one of the elders here, lead teacher and pastor at Peninsula Grace, and it's good to have you here. Been a beautiful week, hasn't it? Sunshine, uh, but it is getting colder. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, words will be on the screen in the ESV. Um, and I just wanted to, well, before we get into the text today, I wanted to welcome the newest member to our Peninsula Grace staff. As you know, uh, Lisa is stepping down, the uh, gal that just gave the announcements. She's been, was in the office for eight years, did an amazing job, uh, and is now going to be uh, home with the kiddos. She'll still be around, obviously, as you saw today, still be a part of the team, but filling her role, working the other two days with uh, Ryan, our other admin assistant, is uh, a new gal by the name of Katie Hamrick, and she's the one without the, okay, yeah, that, that's good, that's, oh. it built, it built. Um, Katie's the one without the handlebar mustache, just if you wanted to uh, clarify that. And we're excited to have, it was just amazing to, the Lord provided so quickly. Uh, Katie's one who's already uh, attends here at Peninsula Grace, uh, her and her husband Hunter, and she is outgoing, she's friendly, she's personable, uh, she loves people, but most importantly, she loves Jesus. And so we're excited to have her on the team. Uh, she was here first hour, but be sure to welcome her as you see her in the coming weeks. Uh, so, so today, Matthew 26, and we're going to be talking about the bread and the, the wine that Jesus passes to his disciples, and we're actually going to be doing that together at the end of the service. Um, last year, Jill and I, uh, we took our honeymoon trip to the Hawaiian island of Kauai. Anybody been to Kauai here before? Come on. Uh, we stood in the rental car line, what turned out to be over two hours. The Holy Spirit exercised the uh, fruit of patience in our lives. We noticed that there were these roosters just running all over the place. And we're like, that's normal, right? Like, what, what in the world is going on with all the uh, feral roosters? And it turns out these roosters are all over the island. And, and the locals will tell you um, that there were hurricanes in the 80s and 90s that destroyed all these chicken coops. And now you have these wild jungle chickens just roaming the island uh, freewheeling. Now, roosters are very uh, symbolic as they serve us as a reminder to wake up, right? You hear the rooster crow and you're reminded it's time to get up. So let me hear your best rooster crow this morning. Okay, that was good. Some of you gave me looks of death uh, and said, I've had two sips of coffee. I'll kill you if you ever tell me to sound like a rooster again. That's cool. I know boundaries now. And in the life of Peter, um, these also serve as a reminder to wake him up. That we're going to see in a couple weeks when he hears the rooster crow, he's going to be reminded that Jesus told him that he would deny his Savior. In fact, next week we're going to see that it awakes him from a literal slumber that he's experiencing in the garden. And Peter himself serves as a reminder to us today as the rooster crows, reminds us of our own failings to be faithful to our God, to be faithful to Jesus. But we're going to look at another reminder today as well, one that is the most important reminder in our lives given by Jesus himself. And this is a reminder at the table to meet him, that he came to meet us failing as we were, and to invite us into this grand feast. But the main course at this main feast, he's, the grand feast, he says, is, is Jesus himself. 
some strange words today, some even off-putting words today, but as we dive deeper into them, we'll see them for the beauty that they are. And now reminders are important, right? I have a reminder app that I am fully uh, able to confess that I have a fully uh, codependent relationship with this reminder app. And if I don't have these reminders on a daily basis, I will not be a faithful person. Uh, it reminds me I need to have lunch with somebody today. And I need to, I'm learning that I need to check with Jill before I make plans. Uh, it's a trial and error situation. Can I get a witness? And um, also, and you think this is a joke, but I actually have a reminder in my phone to remember to put on my deodorant. And this morning, you're welcome, right? You're, you're welcome that I did that I remember that. But today, we're going to see two essential reminders for us in our lives. Number one, our, a reminder that we are in desperate need of Jesus, but also the second reminder that we have him and he has completely provided for us. So let's look at, at first of all, this morning, a reminder of an old promise, an old promise. Now, Sometimes we need to stop, we need to pause in our lives and step back and ask the question, what really matters? Like when we look back at the end of our lives and as we look forward to eternity, what is important and what's not? Last month, um, I had the privilege to speak at my friend Greg's memorial. And as, as I listened to people um, talk about what mattered in Greg's life, what I didn't hear was his good looks. Uh, they didn't talk about how much he weighed. Didn't talk about his career success. Didn't talk about how much was in his bank account. What was talked about was people, friendships. His friendship with God, his friendship with his wife, his friendship with his kids, his family, his dear friends. And man, at the end of the day, who is standing at your bedside? Who is standing at your graveside? Everything else fades into insignificance. And this is design. This is, this, is, this is God's design, right? We are to value what God values. And as we see in the Trinity itself, God is a God of relational love. And so the deepest expression of that love is what is called a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship. And now, this is something that God honors uh, maybe more than anything else, is, is keeping a covenant relationship. And there's nothing that he hates more than the breaking of a covenant relationship. Now, what is a covenant? Um, kind of a weird Bible word. But when we, today, we think of a covenant, we think more of a legal contract. Like, I'm in a contract, a covenant, with Hall's Quality Builder and the bank. Right? That's a legal agreement. Not a lot of warm fuzzies with the three of us. I mean, I like them, but it's not, that's not the point. Um, but in, there was, for God, in, in, in the Old Testament, this was something much more deep than, than what we would think of today. In fact, uh, in ancient, the ancient world, it was the most binding, sacred agreement, or you could say promise, that a person um, could ever enter into. This is where two individuals essentially died to themselves and were reborn as one. In fact, Aristotle, he defined a covenant as one soul in two bodies. One soul in two bodies. And of course, that, that pictures the, the, the marriage covenant that we enter into. When Jill and I got married, the pastor read God's intent from the beginning in Genesis. And it was that the two shall become one. This is the mystery, the wonderful mystery that we're called into. And that I always conveniently bring up to her when we're playing games. So if she's winning, I say, remember, baby, one flesh. Like, we're winning. Isn't this amazing? <laughs> but then I, oh... <laughs> And I always seem to forget the one flesh thing when I'm ahead. So I had selective memory. I need the reminder app. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, so this is not just, though, between a man and a wife, right? This is friendship. 
That often it was these true, loyal friendships that would enter into this kind of a covenant, one that says, I'll die for you, and I know that you will die for me. But the most important covenant relationship is with God himself, what it means to be friends of God. And so we want to look at two important Old Testament covenants to lay the background for what we're going to get into this morning. The first one was God's covenant with Abraham. If you're filling in your blanks, in your bulletin, uh, God's covenant with Abraham. Uh, God called Abraham his friend. Imagine what that would, to, to be known as a friend of God. And there are some key elements in a covenant relationship that we want to look at this morning. There are three of them that we want to highlight. First, there were covenant promises. There, these partnerships were entered into for three central reasons. And these are human needs at the core of who we are. Protection, trust, and love. So they were entered into so there might be protection and trust and love in that covenant relationship. And so God makes these promises to Abraham. And you see these in those. He said that you will become a great nation a prosperous, flourishing nation, and I will keep you protected, loved, in the promised land of Canaan. You can read these promises in Genesis chapter 12. But more importantly, he says, from your nation will come one who will save the whole world from their sins, a deliverer that will bless all the nations through your nation, Abraham. Second aspect of a covenant that we see is a blood sacrifice. Uh, the Hebrew word for covenant is actually bereath, which means to cut until the blood flows. So when they said we're going to make a covenant, what they technically literally meant was to cut a covenant. Because in the Hebrew mindset, what God had taught them was that blood was the symbol of life. That blood was the symbol of life. And so really what was being entered into was a blood covenant. One that says, I'm giving symbolically my life to you as you give your life to me. That's why we call them blood brothers. It's the uniting of two lives into one. That's why they would mingle their blood together. Now in Genesis 15, um, in order to cut a covenant, and you read this, and it gets, it gets pretty gory, but what they actually do is they take these animals and they cut them down the backbone, and then they divide the flesh into two halves, and then between this wall of flesh, there's a river of blood that would flow through it. And then these, the partners that were entering into the covenant relationship would join hands, and they would walk through between those two halves of flesh and around them and through them and around them. And what was established was this figure eight pattern, which is the symbol of what? Infinity. And what, what they were saying is, it symbolized that both covenant members would keep the covenant relationship forever. But what's so fascinating in Genesis 15 and so beautiful is that, is that God actually puts Abraham into a deep sleep. Like Abraham is knocked out cold during this part. And it's God's presence alone that walks through, travels through between these halves, indicating what? The promise here, the strength of this particular covenant did not rely on Abraham, but on the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. Hallelujah. And so we see these oaths, uh, the, the third aspect is, is these oaths that would be made for, uh, for blessings and for curses. Just like any contract, um, there are stipulations for breaking and keeping the, the contract, right? The agreement. Like, so Hall's quality builder and I have agreed, if I don't pay the mortgage, then the bank gets to take my house, right? And so that's the agreement that we've entered into. And so partners would make, they would swear something along these lines. They would say, may God do to me what was done to this animal if I break the covenant. 
So the animal symbolizes what will be happening to the person who's unfaithful to this covenant, which is what? It's death. That your flesh would be divided in half. That you would have your blood spilled. It shows how serious God took these relationships. And in Abraham's covenant with God, what do we see? It was one-sided. So only God could break this covenant, and we know that our God never will. So we see his covenant first with Abraham, and then we see his covenant with Israel, B. Um, Abraham, of course, gives birth to Isaac, who gives birth to Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. And Israel actually becomes the namesake of the nation, the covenant people that God had promised originally to Abraham. But what happens quickly in their story in the book of Exodus? We find them as slaves in Egypt. But God, with his faithful right arm, he rescues them out of Egypt and he spares them from the final plague. If you'll remember, it was the killing of the firstborns. And how does he spare them? He says, if you will take an innocent lamb, divide its flesh and spill its blood, and then put that blood over the doorpost, an angel of the Lord, symbolizing judgment, will pass over, will spare your firstborn. And so for the next 1,500 years, they celebrate this moment in a meal they call Passover. And the Passover was a reminder of God's rescue in their national history and also ultimately to the future deliverer that would rescue the whole world. Now we see these three elements of covenant in, in this relationship with Israel. We see the covenant promises. Number one, God promised to be their God. Exodus 6, 7, I will be my, your God and you will be my people. And I will, I promise to keep you safe and prosperous in the promised land. Protection, love, trust. But then we also see that there were oaths for blessings and cursings, just like with Abraham. Now, unlike Abraham, this one had to be kept by both parties, and he gave them the law. Now, the law would say, if you obey my law, I'm going to hold my end, but your end is to obey my law. And if you obey my law, I will prosper you, I'll keep you in the land, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey my law, then I will curse you, and if you continue to disobey, I will eventually drive you back to slavery and captivity, just like you were in Egypt. And of course, we know how the story goes that they are unable as sinners to hold their end of the covenant they disobey and they are eventually driven away from their land into captivity but he knew that this was coming and so he institutes a system of sacrifices for mercy and grace for the sinner the third one is the blood sacrifice that that god placed this he said every time that there is sin involved that there's going to be some sort of a, a sacrifice um or oftentimes and what this would what was what was happening here remember breaking the covenant Flesh divided in half, blood spilled. And so this animal was essentially uh, shedding their blood in the place of the sinner, symbolizing the giving of life for the breaking of the covenant. But we know that, that, that sheep and, and goats could never ultimately take the place of a sinner. And so this was a picture, a whisper, and an echo of the reality of the coming sacrifice from the deliverer. And all of this serves as a necessary background to understand the significance of what Jesus does next in our story in Matthew. Let's look at a reminder of a new provision. We saw an old promise. Let's look at a new provision. Now, last week, we saw that the leaders of Israel want Jesus dead. But remember, they said specifically, not on the Passover. A lot of people will be in Jerusalem partying. They've got revolution on the mind, and it's not the time to kill Jesus. But Jesus predicts exactly when it's going to happen, right on the Passover. And who do you think ends up getting their way? And sure enough, Judas says, I'll throw him under the bus. 
and he gives the leaders a perfect opportunity to take Jesus out. And it's actually at this Passover meal itself that Jesus is sitting with his closest friends, the disciples, and he wants to show them at long last what this Passover and its story and traditions ultimately pointed them toward. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Now, what's a, what's a family tradition of yours? One that maybe you guys, maybe it's a holiday thing, it's a trip you take, something that you do that you hold very near and dear to your heart. For us, uh, every Christmas morning, here I am hanging out with my brand new Sparky, couldn't be happier. Um, we, before we would even open presents, we would have what we call Orange Julius, right? Here am I making orange, if you don't know what Orange Julius is, it's like orange juice with magic inside. It's amazing, right? It, these things are wonderful. And uh, this is a, a tradition that Jill has graciously adapted with me because of how sacred it is to me. You gotta, you gotta do this, there's Jesus' birth, and then there's Orange Julius, right? It's second, it's a distant second, but it's second. Let's get things clear. Now, imagine one morning, one Christmas morning, that I wake up and I find out that we're not having Orange Julius anymore, declareth the Jill. For 36 years, I've started the greatest morning in my life with the greatest drink in my life. And she says that Orange Julius tradition was actually pointing me to a brand new reality. Orange LaCroix. <laughs> I'm going to be reviewing those stipulations of the covenant very quickly here. Jesus, uh, that, where am I here? I don't even know. <laughs> the Jewish people had been celebrating Passover for over 1,500 years. Think about that in perspective. We have been celebrating our nation's independence for 244 years. One, over over 1,500 years, these people have been celebrating this meal year after year after year. And the head of the house, usually the father, he would lead the family through these precise details. Every, every food, every word, every action was dripping with uh, symbolism, and you did it over and over again. When they would take the bread, they would, they would break it and bless it and say these words in Hebrew. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then they would take the cup of wine, and they would pass it, and they would say this. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. So they would say these exact words and do these exact things over and over and over for 1,500 years. And so here Jesus acts as the leader, the head of their household at this last supper. And it says in verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. He would have said those words we just read and gave it to the disciples. So here's been Jesus following every step, every word of the Passover meal until we get to verse 26. And then he says this, take, eat, this is my body. Whoa! Record scratch. That's my record scratch. Um, <laughs> what is going on here, Jesus? You're going off script here. What are you talking about orange LaCroix, right? What, what, this is not, these are not the words. Where are you coming from? Where do you get off to say this? And Jesus says, those things that you've been doing for millennia, those were all about me. Like those were all pointing to what I've come to do and who I am. And this brings us full circle to our conversation about blood covenants. Verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Why? For this is my blood. This is about me. 
the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's interesting here, the ESV, um, they omit the word new, but they put a little footnote in there to say that it could also be translated new covenant. In fact, several of the other gospels do translate it as new covenant. This is a new thing, and yet this is a new thing that God had promised centuries ago. One of the most important chapters, but a lot of us are not very familiar with it, in the Bible, Jeremiah 31 tells us about this new covenant that he'd be making, not just with the Jewish people, but eventually to all those nations that he said he would bless. Now, look at what he says in verse 31. Behold, he prophesies, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why do we need a new covenant? Because they couldn't keep the old covenant. Verse 32, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them over by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Passover number one, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, Israel was an unfaithful bride. She did not obey me, did not trust me, ran off with other gods, other lovers. And so then why a new covenant? Why, why, what is different about this new covenant? Remember, God's law was perfect. Had they kept his law, they would have been the kind of people that he had called them to be and the kind of relationship that he had called them to have. But we saw that as sinners, they could not keep the law. They did not have faithful hearts. So what's the difference about this new covenant? Well, look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The same result, but a different means. So what's he saying here? He says, this time, this time, that law, it's not just going to be something you're keeping outwardly. I'm actually going to put my law within you. Remember we said the cleansing that needs to happen is, needs to happen on the inside, not just the outside. The Pharisees looked good outwardly, but their hearts were still corrupt. He says what needs to change is who you are. So growing up, I loved me some basketball. I was a baller, right? But here's the problem. I, I had these aspirations. I wanted to be in the NBA. Here's the difficulty with that. I'm a five, nine and a half white boy, right? Not a lot of those in the NBA, especially I'm not an athletic guy and I couldn't shoot, right? Other than that, I was a perfect fit. <laughs> so here's what needs to happen. I could do all the practicing in the world. I could go to the gym, I could work out, I could do all these things. I'm the wrong thing, right? It's not just what needs to change, it's not just what I do, it's who I am. There would have to be a miracle from the Lord on high to make me do what Michael Jordan could do, Right? The problem with us, see, if we want to enter into a covenant relationship with God, this is not just keeping rules. Well, if you, if you kind of clean the outside, if you, if you cuss less and go to church more, the problem is a lot deeper. Israel showed us that our hearts are sinful, that we cannot keep the law, that we will not keep the law, that we do not keep God's commands. And, and the problem here is not primarily what we do, it's who we are. The reason you do what you do is because you are who you are. What needs to change is fundamentally who we are. And so Jesus says, when you eat this, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you think about what's going on. He says, I want you to put this inside of you, symbolizing what I'm about to do. I'm about to change you from the inside out. So how does he do that? Well, let's look at the covenant dynamics with Jesus. The first one, covenant promises. He's made us promises and nothing less than life forever with God. And listen, that starts today. Not just when you go to heaven, it starts today. 
a life with God forever. In Jeremiah 31, our new covenant language, it says this, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. He says, They will know me. Now this knowing, it's relationship, not just facts. He says, I'm going to be inviting you to this new covenant into loyal friendship with me for the rest of eternity. That's a promise. But how does he do this? How does he change who we are? How does he give us the right kind of heart, the loyal, law-keeping, covenant-keeping heart that can walk with God forever? Well, look at number two, the the blood sacrifice. He says in verse 28, he says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this forgiveness, this would be dialing the disciples back to Passover slavery in Egypt language. This, this word to forgive, it means to release from bondage. But we have not just been released from bondage to another nation or slave drivers, but from sin and death itself. That's what's happening here. And Jesus himself, how does he accomplish this? He himself becomes the Passover over lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And just like with Abraham, he says, this, this is my body, and this is my blood. Jesus's flesh was divided. Jesus's blood was spilt. Jesus died for me, the covenant breaker, right? That should have been my blood spilled. That should have been my flesh divided, because I'm the one that broke the covenant. What he does is he keeps it on our behalf, And he pays the price for me. Now, this wasn't just paying for sins. Salvation goes way beyond just, we don't have to go to hell because Jesus paid the price. That's a beautiful part of salvation, but it's not the whole story. The blood, remember we said, represents life. And so when Jesus died and his blood was spilled, it symbolized what he did spiritually, that he gave me his loyal, covenant-keeping life. When we take those elements, we show that that new life is in us. And now you and I can actually be the faithful bride that we were called to be. And be it inwardly, not just outwardly, not just put a ring on the finger and be a poser. But you will actually be what he's called us to be. Now, not perfectly, right? It's, gonna be, it's a growth process. But what's growing in our hearts now is a genuine love for God and a de- genuine desire to follow him will want to obey him, that will want to trust him, that will want to love him. The last element was these oaths for blessings and curses. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Justin. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a while, and I know that I'm not always faithful. Like, you talk about this changed heart, this new life. That's great and and all, but I break my vow of loyalty with Jesus all the time. I, I disobey him. I trust other things. What happens then? Like, what about these curses? What about, what about that situation? And, and what does Galatians 3 tell us? about the curses that you bear for covenant breaking. Galatians 3 says this, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Now listen, as a believer, there is discipline, right? Hebrews says the Lord disciplines those he loves, but there's difference between disciplining a son or daughter and they continue to be a son or daughter and condemnation, saying, you're no longer my son or daughter. And now, God's judgment, he says, when we sin, what's going to happen? That, that I will, my judgment, my judgment angel will pass over 
my sins. Why? Because I'm covered in the perfect blood and life of Jesus. This is the new covenant promise. He says at the end of this thing, and I will forgive their wickedness, release them from their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. That doesn't mean that like me, God has a bad memory. That means that he will no longer condemn us, punish us because of that sin. Not because we didn't sin, but because Jesus, his flesh was divided and his blood was spilled for us. Amen. So when I inevitably blow it this week, when I break my end of the covenant bow with Jesus, when I'm unkind, when I'm greedy once again, when I am proud, when I'm jealous, when I'm unfaithful, he isn't waiting up there with a lightning bolt to throw it at me. He sees me in Christ. He sees that I'm clean. He sees that I'm forgiven. He sees that I'm accepted as though I was Christ himself. And you know why? Because we are one. The two souls, one soul in two bodies, he remembers our sin no more. Why? Because even when I'm not faithful to keep the covenant on my end, Jesus will always be faithful to keep the covenant on his end. Hallelujah. This is good news because our last part of the story today reminds us that even as his disciples, we are in need daily of his faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace. The last point, a reminder of our daily need. Now, you, you ever had a good pep talk? Like some of these sports movies where the, the coach is in the locker room before. My coach, when I, last game, my senior year in high school, we're at going into the state championship game, and he gets into the locker room, and he tells this, this story about uh, this guy, this homeless guy he sees on the street corner that day as he was driving around Anchorage, and he thought how easily that could have been him if the Lord hadn't been gracious and totally turned his life in a different direction. How grateful he was to be in this locker room with us and to not be on that street corner, and that we should take this and see this as a gift from God. And he's just getting us so pumped up. I'm like, Coach, I am ready to run through a wall for you like let's do this right i am so pumped up spits flowing out of my mouth good thing you guys are more than six feet away um and so you think after a moment like this and this pep talk that jesus gives them that they are just pumped up and say jesus whatever you say to do we're going to do and they actually are you're going to see their bravado bravado in just a minute but jesus needs to splash some cold water on them and say in a moment you guys are actually all going to ditch me verse 30 oh there i am we won come on come on when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He says, this very night. Do you hear this? Imagine being told in a couple of hours, you're going to bail on me. Like how quickly they go from this sweet moment with Jesus to disloyalty and cowardice. And that's my heart too. But, but notice here, he quotes Jeremiah's prophecy in, in Jeremiah 13, 7. It says, when the shepherd is struck, which is Jesus, when he's condemned and eventually crucified, what's going to happen to the sheep? They're going to scatter. They're going to run away. And the disciples are these sheep. Now, maybe not like Judas, but in one way or another, they're all going to betray him. Every single one of them will fall away. Some of them are going to defect and just run. Some of them, like Peter, will deny him. But in our story, there's only one faithful covenant-keeping friend. Now, now notice that Jesus is saying that Zechariah actually predicted this very moment centuries ago. This is, this is amazing, that they're falling away does not fall outside of God's sovereign plan and what's going on here. Now, we said last week, we hold this intention that God's sovereignty, his will is going to be done, and yet we are held individually responsible for how we respond to what he's doing. 
But this is, this is amazing to me that not only is Jesus unsurprised that his disciples are going to desert him, here his words are actually prepared, are, are, are there to prepare them and comfort them, to give them hope as they're deserting him. I mean, this is incredible love, you guys. That they're all about to, imagine your closest friends are going to betray you under, in the darkest moment of your life. And all you're concerned about is that they will have confidence and comfort through it. He knows that not only will you and I betray him and fail him, but he wants to prepare us and give us confidence to walk through it. And and this gets even better. Verse 32, he says, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus, uh, Peter can never be accused of lacking confidence. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, there's your reminder, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said, yeah. Now this is incredible. Jesus just said, I'm going to raise from the dead the most amazing, and he predicts the greatest miracle of all time. So he's about to be zombie Jesus, and all that, that, that Peter can go is, me, deny you, nuh-uh, and the disciples are all like, yeah, nuh-uh, us too. Now, sometimes we're so preoccupied with ourselves that we don't actually stop to listen to people. We're not listening to Jesus here. We overestimate our strength, underestimate our weakness, and we don't actually listen to what he's saying. But Peter says here, I will never fall away. Didn't Jesus warn them against this kind of language to make a rash vow or an oath? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He said, slow your roll here, Peter. Beware of using language like that. And we've all said things, right? I once said I will never date a girl online. Hey, girl. <laughs> Glad I broke that one. <laughs> or maybe it's not, my kid will never be like that kid. Right? How many of you said, I will never drive a minivan? <laughs> right? We'll go check the parking lot, right? Or maybe we told our spouse in all sincerity, I will never hurt you. And over and over again, we do. Or maybe there's an addiction or a struggle, a temptation, and we say, I will never do that again. And you meant it. But our hearts are not faithful. We do not keep our word. We need to beware of that kind of language. That kind of language is only safe with God, who can truly say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the only covenant keeper. And so we put our strength, not in our own uh, abilities, not in our own strength to say, I will never, but in the one who strengthens us, that he will never. I, I, I remember a few uh, weeks ago, uh, we sang the song, I am holding on to you. And I love what Bridget said, that, that we don't sing this saying, I am holding on to you. This is Jesus singing to us that I am holding on to you. It doesn't matter how, how hard my little feeble hands are holding on. What matters is that I'm in the grip of his grace, Amen that he is holding on to us and that he will never let go. And Jesus says, oh no, not only will you fall away, you're going to do it before the sun rises and the rooster crows, but, but the disciples, after failing Jesus, can lift up their heads. Why? Because after predicting their failure, he promises his faithfulness. Go back to verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will, that's a promise word, I will go before you to Galilee. 
He says, after the shepherd here, after the good shepherd is stricken, I'm going to rise up and continue to lead you. That I'm going to go before you to Galilee and that by my grace, you will follow me there. That you will, even after you've fallen, you will find restored friendship with me in Galilee. And brother and sister, we can take heart because when, not if, when we fail him, inevitably again, we lose our cool, we fall back into that temptation, fall back into that addiction, another sign of unfaithfulness, another turning away from him, trusting something else. What he says here is, remember, I will not fail you. Jude 1, we hold on to these precious promises. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless, finish what he started, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy be all glory and honor and praise and so unto him we raise a cup we raise a glass to him who is able to keep us from falling not because of how hard we're holding on but how because of how strong he's holding on to us why do we need these reminders because we like the disciples we are so quick to forget i don't know about you but i can walk away from a sweet time of worship like this or i've just had an amazingly encouraging time a conversation with with a brother or sister in christ or maybe we've had a sweet time with the Lord in the morning, and then it's like immediately, it's like I forgot exactly all the things that I just read or thought about or rejoiced in. And I go back to my unfaithful, disloyal ways. The rooster's crow here reminds us of our continual need for God's redeeming love, that we need a faithful, loyal, covenant friend in our lives, because that is certainly not us. And the bread and the wine remind us that until he returns... He will not fail you. He says, I'm going to go before you, and one day, by my grace, you'll be with me where I am. We want to celebrate that today in, in the form of this bread and cup, and so I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come on back up, and what we're going to do as we sing this next song, um, we are going to um, dismiss you. We're going to kind of try to keep it a little bit, traffic a little bit lower, give each other some space, and so uh, I'm going to have you divided up into a couple of sections. So